What's that old movie? That old Oliver Twist on that fool, glorious fool. What more could we ask for, huh? That's old school, huh? It's a lot of people don't know about it. They don't even make musicals that much anymore. Maybe Hamilton. That's the only musical, right? They don't know about that Oliver Twist. Food, glorious food. What more? I tell you what, everybody knew about that. Man, praise God for that. When you talk about connected with our community, over 900 people. Hey, good. Praise God. Thank you for your efforts, brother. That would not happen if you haven't been in the community, man. So thank God for you and, your, and what you're doing and making our church have a good reputation in the community. Yeah. 900 people, a traffic jam. That food better have been good for that. All right, so off of Oliver Twist, and let's get to the message. Last week we did a, a, a sermon called Hindrances to Love, Part one, this will be part two, and it was essentially us not understanding a hindrance is the difference between sin and temptation. All right, so we looked at James chapter one, verses 12 through 15, but primarily verses 14, verse 14 and some of 15 to make the case that there is, at least from James's perspective, 13 and 14, there is a, a process in which we come to the place of sin. Now, for some of us, that process happens so quickly from being tempted to sinning that we don't realize that there is one. And part of the responsibility of the believer is to, in their maturity as we grow, to be able to see this process clearer than we did before. There was a point in our lives where there was no process. If you didn't grow up in a Christian home and didn't accept Christ at an early age or you just kind of grew up and don't exactly know when there was that transformation moment. But for those of us who do remember growing up not in a Christian home, there was a clear difference for us when there was no process. There was still a choice. We still felt ways and we didn't always act on the sin that we felt. But there was no process, no no consideration of honoring the Lord. No, no not doing something because we wanted to glorify God. It may have been the fear of the consequences or, or some retaliation, but it wasn't because we wanted to honor the Lord. And so James is communicating a process of how sin plays itself out. And for those of us who want to honor the Lord, we have to take that seriously. Now, in last week's sermon, we looked at a case study which was Eve, and we saw this process play out. Now, one of the things that I said last week, which I think is really important, is to remember that, and here was the process, it's consider. So temptation wants us to consider something that God says not do. It wants us to justify it, which is to make excuses for why we should do it. It wants us to agree that it's actually a good thing to do in light of the justification. And then it wants us to act. And acting isn't always external. Acting can be something I believe and feel internally, even if no one is aware of it. Like people ask questions about lust. And when Jesus said, if you look at a woman lustfully in your heart, it's not just, it's just the imagination is an, is, is an action. The desire for and the agreement to want something that's not yours is an action. But we're trying to remember that there is a process because many of us get discouraged at the fact that we even consider sin. 
We get discouraged at the thoughts that come into our minds, particularly if there are ways that we fail continuously or fail previously. And then we almost think the desire or the, the idea to do that again is the same thing as doing it again. And many of us, including myself, have been hornswoggled by the enemy. We've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, and run amok. And this is not true. We shouldn't get discouraged by what we consider because that is the initial mode of temptation. If there is no consideration to sin, then there's no temptation to do it. It is temptation's job to, to remind you of it. So that was what Satan did. Did God really say, don't touch this? Did he really say that? No, you won't die. Let's consider that for a second. Did God really actually say that? So there's a sense where that's going to happen. Well, we're going to look at another case study today. We're going to see this play out in Luke chapter 4 briefly. This isn't our main passage, but we're going to look at this briefly so that we can see the case study is legitimate. That consider is not the sin itself. It's not, it's the, the temptation. What it wants you to consider is what all human beings have to face, including our Lord and Savior. So let's, let's look at Luke chapter 4. And we're not going to go through the whole thing. We're just going to break it down in pieces and just do a case study. We're going to go through this briefly, and then we're going to camp out in our passage in 2 Corinthians 10 for the remainder of our time today. Looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, here's, here's how the scripture describes the scene. It sets the scene for our understanding. It says this, and I quote from the CSB. Then Jesus left the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. So now Jesus couldn't be, as James taught us, that temptation occurs when we are lured and enticed and dragged away, sort of dragged away and enticed by our own desire, evil desire, a desire to do something evil. Well, Jesus didn't have any desires to do evil, and he'd never sinned to benefit from the pleasures of sin to tempt him to do it again. So this particular temptation, it has to be external because Jesus has no internal desire to sin and no historical practice of it for him to desire to do it again. So the enemy comes and presents an external consideration. It's still based on what Jesus needs and what he desires. Now, the detail of him telling us that he's hungry is very intentional. The scripture wants us to know at least two things, that fasting for 40 days makes a person physically weak. And when you're physically weak, you're more susceptible to temptations that you wouldn't be if you weren't. Think of how easy it is to get irritated when you're tired, how easy it is to snap at people, how easy it is to justify sinfulness when you're tired or not feeling well. It's almost like I don't feel good, so anybody that bothers me is getting sinned against. We don't say that actually, but our fun functionality, we do do that. So, the, so not eating for 40 days, Jesus is physically weak and he's hungry. This is important because it's not like Jesus was just, you know, 
he was just dead like, hey, tempt me, I'm ready, let's go, let's get it. Let's hurry up and get this done so I can get back to business. This is real temptation. And the devil somehow is made aware that Jesus was fasting, and he starts with this first consideration in verse 3. Here's what he says. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. So here's the consideration. You're hungry. Feed yourself. Feed yourself. Now, this particular temptation, because this is Jesus, and this does happen to us as well, there is also a justification attached to the consideration. So he's saying, look, feed yourself. You're hungry. But here's the justification. If you are the son of God. So there it is. You're the son of God. Feed yourself. You should, that's nothing for you. You're the son of God. You shouldn't be hungry. You know, scripture doesn't give us all the details if it was just this sentence. But Satan's clever. So there's the justification. If you are the son of God, so you can be like, yeah, actually, I, mean, I got authority to do that. I mean, think of it. What would be sinful about Jesus feeding himself? He's hungry. Well, what would be sinful is to listen to the enemy. When you fast and you commit to fasting, that's what you do. You avoid eating. So the temptation to eat before you finish whatever fast you let out is more temptation than anything else. This is the same as in the garden. This is how Satan justified it with Eve. You will not, you won't surely die. But what was the consideration? You'll be like God knowing good and evil if you eat the fruit. Sometimes the justification of sin comes with the consideration of it, at least some of it. So here's how Jesus answers him. He says, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. So Jesus didn't consider or justify it. He kills both of those. Then Satan continues on. He goes to verse 5, 5 through 7. He says, so he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time, in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. Now, one of the most fascinating things about this particular temptation and what I'm about to say, I can't necessarily prove from Scripture, but we, when we look at Scripture, it doesn't also affirm this. It says that Satan was able to show him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, as far as we know, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He has no control over time. As far as we know from the scripture, Satan can only be at one place at one time. He has to go here. He has to go there. He's not God. He's not everywhere. He's not omnipresent. Even though evil is omnipresent, it seems that way. Satan is not. So it's interesting that it says that he was able to show all the kingdoms of the world at a moment's time. That sounds like sovereign activity. That sounds like he was able. And what it means is from the beginning, from, from where Jesus was, through the rest of time up until our day and age, until the end of time, Satan was able to somehow show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in just a moment's time. But he himself can only be at one place at one time. So here's what it appears like. And I can't prove this but I believe this is accurate. Here's what it appears like, is that Satan was given a special ability just to tempt Jesus to sin, a momentary power 
that he doesn't normally have to show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in one moment, to say, listen, you can have all of this. This is what you came for, for all of these kingdoms to be subject to God. Well, I have been given these kingdoms of authority. I've been given authority. I can give them to anyone I want. Now, if you know this story, the question we should be asking is, well, who gave him authority over these kingdoms? Who gave you this authority, Satan? The one you're talking to. The devil is still God's devil. And so here he does, he tempts Jesus, which I believe to be a power that's not normally his. For this unique temptation of the Son of God, he's able to tempt Jesus to sin, and he gets no consideration, no justification to do this from Jesus, even though the, the Savior's desire is that all these kingdoms belong to him. But you know Satan's a liar. He knows that Satan, first of all, doesn't have the authority to give those kingdoms to anyone. Even though he said he does, the authority to give those kingdoms to anybody came from the one who you're trying to say should worship you to have those kingdoms. So how am I going to let you borrow money and then have to worship you to get it back? That just doesn't make sense. I give you $2 million and you tell me if I do something for you that I don't want to do, I can get it back. And I got more money than that. I gave you that because that's nothing to me. Satan is a clown. And he gets no consideration from Jesus. He says this in verse 8. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, if this is, is timestamp accurate, then Jesus seemingly answers him right away with truth. He's tempted. No consideration. No justification. Truth. Next temptation. Verse 9 through 13, he says this, so he took him up to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will give his angels concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. And after the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. So here's the consideration. Throw yourself down. Jump down from here. You jump down from here. People are going to see you jump down. And here's the justification. If you are the son, that's one. Here's the other one. His angels will protect you. So look, man, if you're the son of God, no big deal. Top of the pinnacle, highest in the temple, everyone can see you. Jump down, the angels will protect you, and everyone will be like, the Messiah's here and flock to you for worship. Let's do it that way. The strategy here is interesting because Satan is using the scriptures to tempt Jesus to disobey the scriptures. How's that work? Satan is using the scriptures to tempt Jesus to disobey the scriptures. So you know what this means? Satan will use the scriptures to tempt us as believers to disobey the scriptures. Yeah. 
I think this happens more often than we think, that believers are tempted by the scriptures to disobey the scriptures. Let me just give you an example. And let's just take one from our current situation. There are people who think we need to speak with strong prophetic language against people who vote a particular way. If you don't vote this way, how could you vote for this? And we need to speak prophetically. There was a sermon recently where a guy cussed in the sermon at people who he thought were teaching a theology of justice that he disagrees with. And he said, we need to speak as the prophets with the authority, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and these guys. And I thought, man, you don't live like those prophets, though. Them prophets were not, they didn't have plush lives, fam. They were, run, they were hiding from Jezebel sometimes. I don't got you doing that. But there's this thing where, well, let's, let's take Jesus flipping over the tables, and that's what we need to do. If you don't vote this way, then we need to flip over the tables and push back against the culture, and you take that scripture that God describes and make it something that God commands, and you forget that if you, if you don't love your brother whom you have seen, then you don't love God whom you haven't seen. So let me slander and be critical of my brother because he disagrees with me politically or all these other things. And let me totally forget that God says I'm actually acting like a non-Christian. And that while I may be theologically conservative, I may be, as it relates to love, ethically unbiblical. The enemy will use scriptures to justify disobedience to scriptures. How many of us have been tempted to think, man... You know, God forgives us. We struggle and stumble and we just give in to particular temptations because we're just tired. That's what we call presuming on grace. He tried it with Jesus. He tries it with us. And from what I see in this landscape of the church, from my limited vantage point, I see it working. I see it working. Here's Here's a truth that Jesus pushes back with. All right, do not test the Lord your God. He uses Deuteronomy 8 twice and Deuteronomy 6 once in his pushback, in his fight against temptation. So as you can see, Jesus was tempted to consider three different things. Eat food, worship Satan, and jump off of this temple. And all three of those things are things that Jesus actually wanted, needed to eat, or needed, needed to eat because he's hungry, wanted the, the kingdoms of the world to worship God and wants to demonstrate his glory, but not the way that Satan was tempting him to. That wasn't what Jesus' mission was. His mission was not to make a big splash. The Messiah's here. Oh, It was to come in humble. Be low, be humble, serve, be among the people. It was important that Jesus was like his brothers in every way, yet without sin. That's Hebrews 2. The battle is not in consider and contemplate. You can't always help what temptation wants you to consider. And so we don't need to be discouraged 
we might be caught off guard by some things that pop into our minds. But don't be discouraged. Don't think what you're being asked to consider is somehow you've already agreed and are acting. Hold on. Not so fast. Jesus was asked to consider some things that were not the Father's will for him, and he didn't do it. He didn't justify, agree, or definitely didn't act. So don't be discouraged. This will hinder you from being loving, especially when you failed at it yesterday. You're trying to be loving. Your kids are getting on your nerves. You love them. You recognize children are a gift from the Lord, but not today, Satan. And them kids are just, they just, there's a, there's a, there's a, they've just grown in this particular day. They've just grown in their, the wisdom of how to tempt you for some reason. It's like they've just, they've just matured in what will get under your skin. And you know that this is happening and you're praying like, Lord, I don't want to help me. I know these kids, they're my kids. And I love them and all the things that you say. And then all of a sudden they just say something, snap. You let go. You're disappointed. You're discouraged. Well, that temptation happens again the next day. And you have the same thought or the same feeling. Don't think that you've done it because you feel like there's, there's a consideration to do it again. There's still a choice to act. We can fight. Maybe not what is considered, what we should consider, but we can fight justifying it to be the case. Some of our justifications where we lose is we just think, I just, I just feel like I can't not feel this way. It's always about how I feel. I, just, I can't not feel this way. I, can't, I did it yesterday. I feel I'm just not, I'm the worst. All, all these things, we just come down on ourselves. We condemn ourselves. And then once there's a condemnation of self, then, we've, then we convince ourselves that we've actually already done it because we still feel it. A Christian shouldn't feel this way as if Jesus, as if Jesus being tempted, he's not thinking, Wait, why am I hungry? Of course you're hungry. You haven't eaten. Of course you want the kingdoms of the world to, don't let the enemy fool us. See, well, we have to deal with something that Jesus didn't is that we have failed multiple times and experienced pleasure from these things at times. And so the temptation to do it again, especially when it harms someone else, almost feels like I'm doing it again. And we get discouraged and we think we're not fighting and we haven't even acted on it yet. We've already given up on one level. That the, the consider is going to get you to think and do something the opposite of what God says is good. And that's not evil that you've committed. It's evil that it wants you to commit. Now, there's something that Jesus understood that most of us don't. And this is the actual second hindrance to being loving. Is what we misunderstand. We misunderstand some things that Jesus didn't misunderstand. He understood these things. So we're going to talk about, let's now take our attention to, case studies over, let's take our attention to 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. And I'm going to read these three, and then we're going to look at three things that we need to understand, because I think these are woefully misunderstood, not among everyone, but I think a good bit of people. 
And I'm not not just talking about our church. Like I have the opportunity to talk to a lot of believers and these things come up. I do a podcast where people comment all the time about things that we're saying. And some of the stuff I say on the podcast is just stuff I say to you guys. And there is a sense where, wow, we're all struggling. We've all been, and this isn't all. I'm not like, oh, this great preacher and insightful. These are just ways that I fail. And the Lord is just showing me this is where I've been caught up. And I just share it because I know others have been caught up in the same way. So 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, here's what it says, and we're going to look at three things that we misunderstand, that we have to understand in order to really be loving and really glorify God in the ways that he's called us to. Beginning in verse 3, and I quote, For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. All right, Jesus understands some things that we don't, and we're going to look at these right now. The first one is in verse 3. Here's what it says again. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The first thing we have to under, we have to understand our war. See, the war that we're fighting is misunderstood among believers. And what I mean misunderstood, I don't mean ignorant as if I've never heard it, but misunderstood in, in terms of the severity and the continuity of it, how, how consistent this war is. This is the war that doesn't go away, even if you're having a great day, even if you feel like you're just killing it right now. The Lord's giving you grace to grow in areas that you hadn't seen, and you're grateful for that, and we should always celebrate that in ourselves and in others. But the war that we're fighting is misunderstood because sometimes we think the war is different than what it is, and this verse is, is an application to remind us that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. This is a different war. This isn't the war between political parties, the war between countries. This isn't a war between sleeper cells that are trying to destroy government entities. This is a war that is way different. And he says, we live in the flesh. Yes, we're human beings. We have bodies, but the war is not according to the flesh. This is a contrast that we live in the flesh but our war is not necessarily in the flesh. This is different. It's a contrast that God purposely puts in place to highlight aspects of the faith that he has given us. We are reminded, we are reminded by this verse that the real war is not something that we see, it's something that we believe. I can't see this war. But it's something that we believe. It's not supposed to be by sight. It's a spiritual war. Or if we see it, we have to see it differently. We see it through the lens of faith. You see, it's easier to fight wars that we see by sight than it is to fight them by faith. We don't understand this. Jesus understands what kind of war this is. He understands the significance of this war. Jesus understands that eating food in and of itself isn't sinful. But because it's coming from you, the spiritual enemy of God, that makes it not just me eating bread because I'm hungry. It makes it a spiritual thing of obeying desires at you and obeying what you're telling me to consider. I don't take my cues from you, Satan. 
If we don't understand the war that we're fighting, how will we know if we're using the right weapons? I think this area trips up more believers than we think, especially in this day and age. We misunderstand the war that we're fighting. So this passage reminds us, listen, this war is not according to the flesh. I remember one time watching this movie about this Catholic priest. I don't even know what it was called. It was probably, from my recollection, it was a dumb movie, and I have no idea what the Lord's bringing it back to memory right now, except to make this point. I haven't thought about this movie since probably the moment I watched it because it was done to me. But there was this movie where this Catholic priest would sin and the way that he would make penance, he would strip his clothes and they, they would show us his bare back and he had this whip and he would just whip himself ah, and switch sides. Ah, and he'd just whip himself. Ah, ah, and he would just do this. And then his back would, you know, you see whelps coming and blood coming and he felt like that was his way of making penance. For his sin. Nah. Jesus' back was ripped open for our sin. You don't make penance by hitting yourself because that's waging war according to the flesh. His sin is spiritual. There's a different war going on. And his back didn't do nothing wrong. There's a movie, one of my favorite movies. Has a, has a line that everyone used to love this line in the 90s. And there was a man. He was describing a, a, a mythical being in this movie named Kaiser Soze. And he makes this point. He says this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing the world that he does not exist. And I've said that before in historical sermons. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled is, is, is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And I think it's true. Even among believers who know that he exists, we tend to think the war that we're fighting is not one that has him as our enemy. We forget that it's not according to the flesh. We have to understand our war. The second thing that we misunderstand, and we'll double down on these in a few moments, is verse 4. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. All right, so the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. So what is he saying here? We have to understand our weapons. Because the war is not in the flesh, the weapons we have given, we've been given are not in the flesh. And I'm going to come back to this thought later, but I want you to keep your mental thumb there. Because the war is not in the flesh, then we're not using weapons of the flesh. He's making this clear. Now, the passage does not list what weapons they are. Paul does not say what weapons he's referring to. Some people think this is referring to the list that he lists in Ephesians 6, 13 through 20, where it's like the, the, you know, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of truth, the belt of truth, and the, you know, the, all those things. And, and those are all like these spiritual categories. And you think, well, those aren't really weapons. And he, well, actually, according to, to God, they are weapons. So people think he's referring 
to that particular list, and I think that's a good reference. But I want to, I'm not going to go through that list. You can look at those separately in Ephesians 6, 13 through 20. There's, I want to go back to the wilderness real quick and, and see what, what Jesus did, because I think Jesus teaches us something that is significant that we have to understand. Back to Luke 4, verse 1. Here's what we're reading. Let's go back to the wilderness for a second. So if this was a movie, this would be like one of those throwback scenes where you cut away back to something that happened before to help us understand something happened later. Here's what he says. Then Jesus left the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days to be tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry, right? So here Jesus makes himself physically weak by not fasting. This is almost an application of Philippians 2, 5, when it says that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So here Jesus is it's an application where Jesus is saying, I do not consider being fully God something that I'm going to hold on to when I face this temptation. I need to be fully man as best as possible. So him being weakened in the flesh was, was as close as, uh, as, as the God-man could be to how we are every day in our weakness. As close as he can get, being f- just weakened in the flesh. So he faces temptation in that moment. He does not use supernatural powers to fight sin. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 tells us he had to be Like his brothers in every way, he had to fight it as a human being. He had to fight it. So he wasn't using, first of all, if he was fully God, Satan couldn't even approach him and tempt him. So he had to fight it as a human being. And the way that the Father ordained Jesus to be a human being and fight sin the way that we have to fight it is to use the scripture. Jesus quoted scripture. Now there's something about scripture that Jesus understands that we don't. And all the things that he could have said, he quoted three verses from the Mosaic law. Deuteronomy 8 twice, Deuteronomy 6 once. And that was sufficient enough for Satan to be done. Jesus understands something that we don't about Scripture. Many of us do not see Scripture the way Jesus does. Let's look at a few verses to help you understand what I mean. Let's build up to this point here because I think there's an important lesson here that Jesus understands that we necessarily don't. This is what Hebrews 4.12 says about Scripture. It should be on your screen. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the word of God is talking about. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says this, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. John 17, 17, Jesus prays this to the Father, 
Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. John 1, 1 through 3 says this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Jesus is the word. So when Jesus was using the word to resist temptation, he was using himself. When Satan tempts Jesus with Psalm 91, 11, and 12 about the angels will protect you, when Satan tempts Jesus, he is tempting Jesus with himself, with his own words. And it failed because, as we read in James, God cannot be tempted to do evil. Jesus is the ultimate weapon against the devil. And whenever the word is used, it's using Jesus himself because he is the word. He wasn't just quoting the law of Moses. He was using himself as the resisting of temptation. When we use the word of God to resist sin, we are using Jesus himself. This is a serious reality. It's not just words on a, a black, and, black and red words on a, on a tissue-like paper. It's Jesus himself. So when we resist temptation with the actual word of God, it's Jesus himself we are using. When Jesus resisted the devil, he's using his word himself. He is the word of God. Everything was created through the word of God. He sustains everything through his word. He is the word of God. In Luke 24, at the end, he's walking his disciples through, and it says, then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted for them the, from the beginning all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Jesus is the word, and when we use the word to resist temptation, we're actually using Jesus himself. This is why it's important to read our Bible because we're not just reading words that we're reading Jesus himself. We are connecting with Jesus himself. This is how we get to know Jesus through his word. And, and Satan submits to Jesus. So when we're using the word of God as a weapon to push back against the desires of temptation, we are using Jesus himself. When we read the scriptures, we are reading Jesus himself. He is the word of God. Jesus understood the significance of the scripture because he knew it was him. 
I'm using myself. And believers, often, not all the time, we, we find it difficult. You know, we wonder sometimes, we kind of want to grow in a relationship with the Lord apart from the scriptures. We just want to intuitively get it, you know? I mean, I'm like that too. I'm like, I just want to get it. I just want to, like, I've been a Christian for some time. I've been a pastor for some time. Like, isn't there a point where, like, I'm good. I just don't need the Bible. I don't, I don't need to pray as much. Like, I just get it. I'm just waiting for the Lord to bring me back. And it's like, no. No. Especially when you take into account in Luke chapter 3 that Jesus knows himself so well that he's going back and forth with the religious leaders. He's 12 years old, and they're trying to figure out who in the world is this kid? Who is this kid? They should have been like, man, we need to disciple him. So they got offended and, and, and killed him. At 12 years old, he memorized the whole Old Testament and knew it back and forth and was asking them questions. Think about this for a second. The God who created all things, who is the word of God, became a human being and had to memorize his own word. <laughs> Ridiculous. And then uses that word to fight the enemy as an illustration for how we fight. And many of us, many of us struggle with reading the Bible. And then we struggle with our relationship with the Lord. And somehow we think something's not connecting because we're not readers. I don't like to read that much. Or the Bible's somewhat boring and it's just not that. And then we wonder what happens. And it's like, what's happening is the Bible is Jesus himself. Obviously not in the, in the, in the being of Jesus, but his word is him. And when we read the Bible, we're reading Jesus himself. We're, we're next to Jesus himself, even if we don't feel any different. I don't think Jesus, I mean, we get no indication from Luke or Matthew that Jesus bulbed up and lit up when every time he said depart from, you know. He just used the scriptures. He's using himself. And many of us misunderstand the power of the scriptures. We don't use them like we should because we don't like to be in them like we're supposed to. We just want to kind of get it. And the enemy uses that. He uses that. To be honest, I think it's a temptation where he says, man, haven't you, you know, you're tired this week. You can read tomorrow. You kind of know the Bible. I mean, you've read the Bible in a year before. You know this. You know that. You don't really need I know for me, you know what the temptation is for me? Hey, man, you're going to teach on Saturday. Like, just wait, you know, make, you, make, make your quiet time and be what you're studying. Oh, wait till Thursday when you start your message prep. Like, you don't got to read today. It's Monday. You need to relax. It's your day off. Monday's my day off. It's your day off. Relax. You don't got to read it. You know what the devil wants me to do? He, or the temptation wants me to make my time with the Lord be consistent only when I'm teaching. So that I'm always teaching, but I'm not receiving. Now, everyone, if you're really studying, any preacher should be receiving from the word. So like I get up here and I'm just totally disconnected from it. I was blown away by this, this, this point that I thought like the Lord was showing me in the passage. And I was like, wow, Lord. I just I prayed this this morning. I'm not saying this in any way for anyone to imitate. This was my own conviction. But I said, Lord, may I never go a day without reading your word again. I never go another day, even if it's for a few moments. And that might not happen, but I want to strive to make sure that it doesn't because when I'm, because Jesus is the word. He's the word. And many of us struggle with things because we want, we struggle with anxiety. We struggle with bitterness. We struggle with lust. We struggle with all these things. And we don't want the word to kind of do what it's supposed to do. So we want other things to do it. So we might want to, we might want to get counsel. 
Listen, it's good to get counsel. Get counsel from brothers who you know are mature, but that ain't the word, though. They can't replace the word. Man, let me, let me hold on. Let me hold on. Let me come back to that. Jesus combats temptation with truth because what temptation wants us to consider is a lie. The third thing that we misunderstand that Jesus understood. Verse five, verse, the end of verse four, like four B and five, it says this, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now look closely at the context here. Look at what it's saying here. We demolish arguments. What is an argument? Where do arguments come from? What makes something an argument? Is it two people talking? Is that what he's talking about here? No. No, he's talking about arguments. Where do they happen? Well, he gives you a clue. And every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. Now, actually, and I like the CSB. I left the ESV some years ago. I forgot how long. It's been a couple years since we moved to the uh, CSB. But there are some things I like that the ESV renders better than the CSB. And this is a verse that I like better in the ESV. Because it says, we demolish arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. The CSB says every proud thing. That's it's sort of ambiguous to me. Every lofty opinion. Where do arguments and lofty opinions happen? Right here. They happen in the mind. Arguments. We make arguments in our mind, and then we verbalize them through our speech. We make arguments. We have arguments in our minds, and we verbalize. We actualize them through our actions. Lofty opinions happen. They don't happen in my leg. My leg is never like, hey, I can jump up there. No, that's all here. Everything is here. The lofty opinion happens here, and he's saying that the word of God is strong enough. The weapons that we use go after here. What lofty opinions that we're asked to consider. So we, we destroy arguments, demolish arguments, or in your case, strongholds. These are things that we convince ourselves mentally that we can do, that when we do them enough, they become difficult not to do. That's what a stronghold is. It's an argument that is made over and over that we agree to, that we act on, and we've done it so much it becomes almost like I can't not do this. And sorry for my English majors who hate double negatives. This is why the verse ends with taking every thought captive to obey Jesus Christ, because the battle is here. How you feel is irrelevant to what you intellectually agree to do. There are times I felt offended but did not respond offensively. There are times I felt certain things but didn't say anything. There are times in interactions, even in the church, where I felt like people came at me in a way that they didn't need to. And I thought, and I, and I responded in a way that was opposite of how I felt. And people said, man, you, I thought you handled that well. I was like, I'll never forget one time that happened in, in this room. And my wife came to me afterwards. People walked up and said, man, I wonder why they said that, man. I appreciate the way you handled it. It didn't look like it bothered you at all. My wife walked up and said, I'm proud of you, babe. 
because I knew you were angry. And people were like, huh? I didn't see that at all. It's because she knows me in ways they didn't. And she know when that comment was made in front of everybody to almost make it seem like there's something, I was like, and they don't know that me and that individual had had a conversation a few weeks earlier about the very thing, and they said there was no issues. They were good, and then they bring it up in front of everybody like it's a fresh problem. The stuff that you carry, huh, Mike? And my wife was like, I'm proud of you, babe, because she knew. She knew. The battle is here. The battle is not here. And here by here, I mean how I feel. You know, we tend to think of heart, emotion, and all that. This is what he's saying. He said, listen, we take every thought captive. So the strategy is to take our thoughts captive because the war is spiritual. Four things. The war is spiritual. Our weapons are biblical. Our strategy is practical, but our efforts are eternal. The war is spiritual. And by that I mean, this is a war for our souls. This is not about who we vote for or what we think about justice. This is a war for our souls. This is the, the cosmic chess game. The war is spiritual. That, that, that temptation to not read or pray, or I'm too tired, I don't like to read and all that stuff, and we just think it's just, oh, I'm just, it's just how I feel, I'm just not in the mood, I'm just in the season where, that's spiritual. You know why? Listen, the enemy would love it if nobody really read like that. You know why? Because you don't gather what you don't get what you need. You're not with Jesus himself. Don't get me wrong, I ain't saying when you don't pray, you ain't in the presence of God, but you ain't praying all the time. The enemy knows, man, this word, his word is him. And if we're in the word, it's going to be hard to make us disobey it. But being in the word is different than being aware of it. A lot of us are aware of what the Bible says. But we don't use the weapon of it. It's biblical. This is not just the Bible. It's not just some words that we read that may or may not know is biblical. And this is what Jesus understood. We, we misunderstand the significance of his word because the word is himself. The strategy is practical. I got to take my thoughts captive. I can't let myself justify what, what, I'm, what even, even if it's the desire that I'm having, what I'm trying to consider. Whatever it is, I can't let myself justify it. And, and here's what will make it difficult. Here's where the justification will become the e It's easy to justify things that are sinful that we get the most pleasure from. That's the reality. So you want to talk about gossip, it's just easy to talk behind people's back. Or it's easy to sinfully judge people. I know people that think they're just doing that God's work, just judging people for how they vote or whatever it is. Saying the wildest stuff. Hey, if you vote this, you inherit, you forfeit the kingdom of God if you vote this way. Okay, cool. So let's just, let's take that, let's just, let's analyze that for just a second. So God broke down the law to two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How many people actually do that ever fully in a day? 
Probably none of us. That's why Jesus came. So that means that at every moment of every day, all of us are in some state of perpetual sin against the Lord and are experiencing perpetual forgiveness. So we are consistently sinning against the Lord. This is everyone. And the people that make these outlandish statements believe that they're going to heaven, even though they sin against the Lord every day. And most of them do not ask for forgiveness for those particular sins. And yet someone who presses a button once every four years is forfeits the kingdom. Hmm. It's hard for me to accept. This is what happens when you forget the war is spiritual. You think the war is horizontal. It's about other people. Look at what they do. Look at how they live. But the Spirit says, such were some of you from 1 Corinthians 6. Our strategy is practical. Take our thoughts captive. It's not optional. That's not optional. None of these are optional. All these old, spiritual, biblical, practical, eternal, none of them are optional. They're all what we have to do. What this is teaching us is that the moment-to-moment battle when not trying to justify and agree to sin is way more serious than what we think. And thank God that he forgives us because for many of us, yours included, there are areas that it almost seems like sin, temptation, sin. Boom. But over time, as we're aware of it, we make, there's a distance. And there's some areas in all of our lives where there's some distance. If there isn't, you should be concerned. There should be some distance. Some awareness of the process. Ah, uh, no, I'm not, no way. Not me. I'm not giving in that. There should be a process. This is way deeper than we realize. We misunderstand the significance of it. We are to take our thoughts captive by the word of God to submit them to the will of God. That's what we do. And though we can't help what we consider, we can stop it from being something that we justify. So why is this important? One, because we can use weapons that are not biblical. I said this before in a, ser- in a sermon years ago. In the last few years, one of the things that the Lord has shown me, it was around 2017 or 2018, I realized that a lot of my, the way I handle be- temptation is to distract myself or avoid it. I used an illustration where I'd gotten to a conflict with my wife and I was angry at her. And what I did was I watched a comedy that took away the anger and made me laugh. I was laughing and I forgot that I was angry. But then once the comedy was over and then we saw each other the next morning, the anger was back because I didn't do anything but distract myself from the fact that I was angry. Or I just avoided dealing with it. But I didn't bring it to the word. I didn't go to the word. I didn't let the word kill it out. I didn't let the word consider how I felt. I didn't let the word address the sinfulness in me and my self-righteousness towards my wife. I didn't let the Lord do that. I just let something distract me from giving into it in that moment. And then when I saw her that next morning, the feelings were there. And then we got into conflict because I picked the fight because I was still angry because I didn't deal with it. I distracted. I avoided because avoidance and distraction is not a weapon. It's not a weapon. Or I do stuff like I dismiss it because I know better. 
like, nah, Lord, I ain't tripping. I definitely ain't doing that. I'll act like that's, that's just sufficient. Sometimes that's like, oh, okay. There's a foothold here. This person isn't holding on to the truth. We need truth to combat lies. We need to deal with truth. We need, this, we need Jesus himself to help us fight the temptation, whether it's the enemy or just our own evil d- desires to do evil. Distraction does not cut it. And I failed at that. And I was, I was like, wow, Lord, I am such a clown. What in the world have you got me teaching for? I'm up here just distracting myself. And by God's grace, some of the distractions led to not giving in. It wasn't like, oh, whenever I do it, I fail. But the problem is I create habits of being confident and self-reliant in myself. It's what we call self-sufficiency. I'm confident in my ability to resist things, and the Lord will allow me to bear some fruit in that because I do know him, love him, and want to honor him. But there comes a point where my self-sufficiency is not going to get me to the end. And I have a feeling that there are other people that are watching this stream that can relate to that. We can use weapons that are not biblical. Distraction is not a biblical weapon. Scripture is, though. The second reason why this is important is because we can see the war as physical and not spiritual. So we make it about politics or race or, 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 or just make it horizontal. We make it about other people. This is a spiritual war. You know what this war is about? It's about you. This war is about me. Listen, the war that we're fighting is not outwardly focused. It's inwardly focused. Other people got to fight their own wars. And when possible, we help one another. We bear those burdens. We carry the cross. We're, We're Simon of Cyrene for one another carrying the cross, reminding each other. Let's stay in the word, brother. This is why we have small groups. This is why we do what we do. This is why we we encourage fellowship. This is why we tell every new member, listen, be a part of the life of the church because we need that. We need to remind each other of the word. We need to remind each other of these things. We need to carry each other's crosses because sometimes it's hard for me to remember the word. It's hard for me to desire to go to the word. I may have hardened my heart. I may have agreed and justified and maybe have acted on sin significantly enough that it's hard for me to pull myself back. I need somebody to grab me and snatch me out of the fire, as Jude 22 says. I need someone to be there for me because I, I, I can't do it right now. At least I feel like I can. The enemy has so had me consider and I've acted on my own desires for so long. There are areas where I feel like I cannot do it by myself and that's why we need each other but not just to be like hey little brother but we need each other to give each other the word Mac taught us a couple of weeks ago from Colossians 3 admonishing one another with the word song and spiritual song admonish means to correct one another remind adjust one another We forget that the war is physical, not spiritual. This is not about votes. It's about souls. All these politicians worried about who's voting for who, and souls are just at stake. We need politicians. Let politicians, we don't need no politicians. It's about, this is spiritual. This is about my soul, not my vote. This is about our souls. If people go to hell, it's not going to be because you voted conservative or liberal. Whatever it is, because you have this perspective of justice or this perspective, or whatever it is, 
because you have this practice versus no. We can, we can see the war as physical and not spiritual because it's easy to do that. It doesn't require faith for me to blame it on you or to make you the problem. It doesn't require faith to do that. It doesn't require faith to do that. It requires faith to see I'm the problem, but not you. That's nothing. I can just look, look at how you act. Look at what he just tweeted. Look at this guy. I tweeted something yesterday and the dude said, that's a lie, bro. I said, fam, how do you know that's a lie? Like, how do you know that? You know everything that people say? So it's a lie if you haven't heard it? Like, we're just so into this accusational discernment. It's fascinating. I said, brother, I don't lie, and if I did, it wouldn't be something that I would tweet. I got to save my life or something, maybe, maybe. I ain't going to tweet something that, man, get out of here. It's just foolish to me. And this brother's a believer, prides himself on his theology. But brother, the, the war is not horizontal, brother. Your judgment is your own war. And we can overlook the strategy and its purpose. So we can overlook that the weapons are not biblical. We can use weapons that are not biblical. We can see the war as physical, not spiritual. And we can overlook the strategy and its purpose. We take our thoughts captive. It sounds like overwhelming. It sounds daunting. It's like, man, I would do this all day. Man, you don't, I mean, just start somewhere. <laughs> start somewhere. Listen, nobody is encouraged about running a 20K run. And most people don't think of, I got to get to this. They think of, okay, 1K at a time. Let's take it this way. Let's get to this marker. You watch a race. It's like 20-mile race, and people are at certain markers with Gatorade and water and stuff on the sideline. And I've heard runners say all the time, now you know I ain't talking from experience. Listen, I hear runners say all the time, uh, uh, I, I just, I'm just thinking of that next marker. I just want that next water, that next Gatorade just to refresh me. Even guys who ride in the Tour de France, it's crazy. Man. They're just like, listen, it's that next marker. I'm just aiming to stay focused to that next marker. If I think about the end, Man, I just, I just get overwhelmed. I think about that next marker. What's the next, okay, such and such a way. It's the next marker that helps them. But we get overwhelmed. I think about, I just can't do this every day. Don't worry about how you'll do every day. Just focus on right now. You're going to win something, you're going to lose something, but do something. Do something. Start taking some thoughts captive. Don't give in to them. Don't fall victim to it, considering love is hard. The love that Jesus requires is definitely difficult. But if we can remember that we're not motivated by how we feel about others or how they feel about us, we're motivated by how God feels about us. Then I can love you without having to have any emotional attachment to you. When emotional attachment is there, then it does make it easier. Much easier to love my people that I care about, sure. But that's not required. Because I, I, don't, I won't have the, the opportunity to get to know everyone. I'm not omnipresent. We can overlook the strategy to, and, and, and to see that we can resist sin more consistently. We, can, we can't think of this as all that we have to do. Just think of it as what's my responsibility? What does faithfulness look like right now? I'm not worried. Jesus said, look, let tomorrow has its own worries. Let it worry about itself. You focus on today. In order to persevere to the end, I got to do it today. I can't think about persevering to the end because I don't know when the end is for me. 
persevering to the end starts today. I got to do it today. Just what can I, how can I be faithful today? How do I use the scriptures to resist sin today? If we don't use the word of God, then we're not using Jesus. And that's not legalistic. I think that's, that's biblical. I don't think the Lord expects believers to not read his word and to grow in relationship with him. All of a sudden be super mature. Now, granted, there are moments where if you're a prisoner of war or something and you don't have access in the Lord, there's grace for that. But we're not talking about that. None of us are prisoners of war. Even if you feel like you're a prisoner of COVID, you're not a prisoner of war. That's for certain. We got dusty Bibles in all our houses. Jesus, who died in the flesh, wants us to use him to help us die to our flesh. He died in the flesh so that we can use him to help us die to our flesh. And we have to do that in his word. We have to fight those those considerations. You know, Tuesday's coming, and then there's going to be all this stuff that comes after that. And the people who think they won are going to be celebrating and, and mocking the people who lost. And we're going to be tempted, especially if the person that we wanted to win doesn't win. And the other side celebrating will be tempted to be bitter and angry and judgmental and to, and to tweet things and to put things on Facebook and to push back and do all that or to gloat. And we have to remember, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. What's the action of love that was cry right now? No, that's the consideration. I may even justify it. Look at how they put this. But I'm still, I still got to fight. Still got to fight. No, 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 no. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. No. Love is not rude. No. Man, do I want to say something bad. No. It's not rude. Now, there are times you might reply on that. You know, text, the thing about text is it always looks rude. You can't really, you just, you, just, you just attribute tone in a text. You don't always know what it means. But you know, when you're not that way, you can de-escalate if you need to. But we're going to be tempted to gloat or to judge people or to call them idiots or look at what you're doing. It's just like, no, 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 no. That's not of the Lord. What scriptures do I need right now? What scripture do I need to combat? What truth do I need to combat this lie? It's here. It's here. What's the lofty opinion? The lofty opinion is telling me to say what I'd say something or to do this or to act this way towards these people because I'm offended that they're, they're rubbing in my nose, whatever it is. What is the lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of Christ? And it's not just the knowledge of who Christ is. It's the knowledge of how Christ says live. What's the lofty opinion that's raising itself against how Christ is telling me to live? Well, this person is going to treat me like a doormat, and I'm just going to think they can just get away with anything. What's the knowledge? That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a justification to, to act and to be a certain way that could be sinful towards the Lord. How other people may benefit from your humility can be a wonderful gift or a wonderful temptation to not be humble because other people will take advantage of you. That's a lofty opinion. If God says this is how we need to be, then we have to fight that lofty opinion. We consider it. We may even start justifying it, but we got to go after it. We got to get it because once we agree, you can still fight until you act. But once you agree, 
So if it's, well, if I, well, if I just be humble, then all they're going to do is just say this or do that. Well, if I say this and they're just going to do that, so I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So there you go. There's the agreement. Justification. Well, if I just do this, then they're just going to do that. And then so I'm not going to do that because that was it. You went from justifying to agreeing. Just like that. I mean, what's the point anyway? I, I'm going to fail. All I do is fail. I did this last time. And what's the point of fighting anyway? Because whenever I feel this way, I end up sinning anyway. I'm, the, I'm not good at it. There it is. That's the justification. And there's the agreement. Well, I might as well just do it because I did fail last time. That's how the enemy works. It always works like that. People who have hurt us, man, we just, they're not going to hurt me. If I do this, they're just going to do this again. So I might as well. There it is. Justification. Agreement. And then once you agree, it's like, bam. And sometimes it can happen fast. The point of what we're talking about is to slow it down. Let's everyone take two steps back and let's try to look at this scene again differently. Don't be discouraged or fooled into thinking that what you consider is the same thing as what you're doing. Everyone, including Jesus, was given something to consider. But we can fight it at justify. We fight it at agree so that we don't act. We take our thoughts captive with the word of God to submit ourselves to the will of God. And if we don't understand this, it'll be difficult to actually persevere to the end. And you ask anyone that we know that has walked away from the faith, They lost the battle here. They lost it. They considered. They justified. They agreed. They acted. And for some people, they walk away. May it not be so for us. Salah. Let's pray. Father, I pray as I actually don't know what to say right now, Lord, because there's so much in my mind and my heart, so much of things that I feel. There's so many different types of people with different types of issues watching and listening, agree with this, disagree with that, all those things considered. There are people who are concerned about what happens up to Tuesday. There are people who don't care what happens up to Tuesday. But it is a big moment in our culture. And in my short lifespan here, it's one of the biggest that I've seen. While everyone may not be affected by who, what happens on Tuesday or what happens beyond that, we don't even get the sense that We'll know who the actual president is on Tuesday. We just know that just, there's just going to be chaos. Obviously, you can do anything that you want to, but there's going to be chaos. And among believers, there's already chaos among many believers. And mm. we're just forgetting. We misunderstand the war that we're fighting. Our ethic is love. And we even get mocked for bringing that up. It gets dismissed as if somehow, somehow, 
all things that, that are political or, or racial, or, they just become more important than what's biblical. And I shouldn't be surprised, but I just pray, Lord, that, that you would help us to really double down in our own personal lives. For the war, this war is our own souls. This is us. It's about us. It's not about horizontally what other people are doing. Yes, we are affected by what other people do. There are people that we care about. And we want to help them. Absolutely. 100%. You tell us to bear one another's burdens. You tell us to admonish the idol, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. You give us a list of things that we're supposed to do horizontally. But the war is not physical. It's in us. It's in our, it's in, it's in our mind. We have to renew our minds, Lord. We, we're, aware of what we're, we're aware of what we're told to consider how we justify. And there are areas in our lives where all of us, Lord, have failed so much that when, we're, when, we're, when it comes to consider again, we don't even think that there's a process. And we just, it goes from consideration to actualization. We just do it. We don't even realize that we justify that, agreed it, agreed to do it. There's a process, Lord. Help us to take two steps back and slow down and look at the process. Remind us to not be discouraged at what we consider. Even if we see us justifying it, help us to take those thoughts captive. Your word is you, Jesus, your word is you yourself. It is an aspect of who you are. Lord, may we, may we just, even if it's just for a few moments, not go a day without being with you in your word. Even if it's just time for a verse. Lord, help us to to, to recognize that persevering to the end, particularly joyfully, is about just it's about just, just just growing today. The finish line is the process, but we take steps each step to get there. I thank you that many of us have been fighting and persevering. Many of us have. There's no admonishment or correction as we haven't, but we're reminded, reminded that we have to understand the, the seriousness of what this is. Because we are, as Mark 4 said, we can be distracted by many things, the desire for other things coming to the deceitfulness of wealth. All those things play a role in how we view ourselves. Lord, help us to see that this is spiritual, that this is about even the subtle things like choosing to be on time for work, but not for things related to church. All those things. Lord, sure, there are going to be situations where things come up. It happens to, to me as well, to all of us. But Lord, may our priorities never be so concerned with what happens in our temporal workplaces or the temporal political party or the temporal racial injustices or the temporal things that happen in society at the expense of what is eternal and biblical. Lord, I, we're all failures on one level, but we're all victors in Jesus. And help us to focus on that and, and to assume our responsibility, not as something that overwhelms us or that we're discouraged by because we don't like to, to read or whatever. Help us to go after even that, that thought. Help us to go after even those thoughts that we consider for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, we do have a few questions that have come in. Um, and some of them are, you know, uh, 
not just one question, but maybe follow up. Multifaceted. Yes, sir. So the first one is um, a, a humble confession. I don't understand what it means to correct and how it is done. So the questions are, uh, how do we correct without judging? Are we to correct in any circumstance at all? Well, their question, I'm sorry, is are we to in any circumstance correct others? And then how can we do so without being hypocritical when we sin too? So let's start with a biblical principle first. So Matthew 7, mm. Jesus talks about judging. And his point was, you know, do not judge or you'll be judged. For the measure you use will be measured against you. Then he says, you have a log in your own eye. He says, take the log out of your eye and then show your brother his speck. Right? So Jesus expects this. So there's a process for that. Jesus expects us to share things with one another. Okay? So the process is, okay, how do I, how do I take the log out of my eye, essentially? One practical way is to think what he says a couple of verses later, Matthew 7, 12. Whatever I wish others would do to me, do also to them. So how do I want to be corrected? How would I want someone to show me my fault? Okay? Uh, that's, that's one thing. Another way, another thing to consider is that, listen, we're all hypocrites. So let's just throw out the, we're all hypocrites. We may not do the actual thing that we need to correct, but we do something. So let's like, let, I think we need to just get rid of this idea that like, how can I not be hypocritical? We're all hypocrites. We all sin against the grace of God all the time, right? So let's just get rid of that as we're just, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite, right? But I want to, you want to correct people in as, in as best as you can. Because even this, I fail. I, we've all failed. I fail at this too. How do I want to be corrected is how you correct. You think you want people to give you the benefit of the doubt, I would imagine. You want people to not be self-righteous and, and accuse you, but ask questions, which leads me to my third point. I think we have to ask questions. Some people, mm -hmm. listen, I think we just assume that because we're all believers or something, I mean, there's a, the best correction is, is, is by relational, relational dynamics. There are tons of times me and Mike are told things about people that we don't go to those people and say them because we didn't see it happen. You did. So we try to get you the person to say it. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And then we're left with this knowledge. And then we're like, man, then when certain situations come up, we have to act a certain way based on the knowledge that we have, which is challenging. But, you, you know, we have to be faithful to do that. So I think we, you know, that, you know, I would ask questions. I, like, I think sometimes we just assume that, like, hey, let me just. You know, if, if you don't have a relational connection with this person, just be, I would just say something like this. Hey, could, you, could I ask you a question about something? Would you mind if I share something with you? Okay, sure. All right, I, I saw this interaction. You said this. What, what did you mean by that? Ask them what they meant because sometimes we don't, we don't know what people mean. Mm -hmm. I think we assume what people mean because that's, and that's, what, that's part of the log. I just think I just ask questions. Mm -hmm. what, did, what did you mean by that? As best as, as best as you can. Now, granted, there are situations where you just, these people are your family, you know them. I'm not saying you're free to just go against the grain, but I think it's sometimes when you know people better, you can kind of speak right to that. Like, I don't ask my sons every time, hey, why did you talk like that to your brother? I just say, boys, don't do that, son. Don't do that. Don't, don't yell at your brother. Don't, don't sin against your brother, son. Don't do that, please. Don't, that's your brother, and I give him, you know, he's going to be with you longer than you, you know, all this stuff. So I don't, but I think as best as possible, one, we take the log out of our eye. We remember that, hey, we're sinful. Like, I got stuff too. This person could rightly bring up some things about me. 
Listen, just because people haven't shared things with you doesn't mean there's nothing to share. Always remember that. Because people haven't shared nothing with you in a while doesn't mean you killing it. It could just mean they're afraid to say it. Or they don't have enough relational capital with you to bring it up. Don't think like, because I ain't, so sometimes you got to ask people, hey, is there anything that you're saying that you feel like you're not saying? Sometimes it's good to do that. But I think that's, those are things that I would consider, pun intended, to bring this stuff up. I think we're supposed to on some level. If I'm more comfortable telling someone else what I see about someone else, that's a problem. Unless that person knows a person and you're asking them for perspective and help because you're going to act on it. I think a lot of times we're just, it's just easier to dismiss it and that's just how they are. Well, then I say nothing. And then with me weighing, it's like, oh, the principal's office, here you go. It's like, nah, we just, you know, we just regular old people too, you know? So that's, that's how I would answer that. Thank you. Um, the next question, uh, it says, um, what does the Bible say about times when our minds tell us something should happen for us to grow in the Lord and it doesn't happen? Uh, is this a way the enemy um, specifically tempts us away from believing in God's sovereignty? So I would, because there's not an example, I would have to kind of add an example of maybe like praying for an area and you're not making progress or something. Like I'm not sure what the kind of example would be for that. Um, this is the thing. So we, I think just by default, right, we're, 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 we're beings that are, connected to a space-time continuum. So we, are, we live our lives by nanoseconds, seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. Right? We're confined to time constraints. And so we tend to think that things will happen in, in time constraints that are, that are effective for us. And that's not always the case. Or we want God to do things that he's going to do, but we have a certain way we want to do them. Most people, when we're asking God for something, we kind of have a way that we think he's going to do it. We may not say, hey, God, we want this and do it this way. Now, some of us are bold enough to think that way, but most of us just intuitively expect if God's going to answer, this is how it's going to look. Let me give you an example that I hope isn't necessarily what the Lord has for you, but if it is, then it is. I remember hearing a story about someone that was praying desperately for their child to believe in Jesus. And, and they were praying for some years, and there just wasn't any fruit of that. Well, that child got into a serious car accident and became a paraplegic. And the parent who was praying for that child ended up having to take care of that child, who was a paraplegic. And in the course of that relationship, over a number of years, that child got saved and gave their life to the Lord. And as far as I'm aware, glorifies God to this moment. Now, was that parent praying, Lord, put my child in a car accident that would cause them to be crippled that I would have to take care of and do all of that work? No. They were just hoping that one day they'd read the Bible and be like, I believe. So that parent had to wrestle with their own struggles with God for having it happen that way until when it was all said and done, they looked back and thought, wow, Lord, it wasn't, what I, it wasn't the process I wanted, but it was the outcome that I was hoping for. Sometimes when we want things from God, it's, it's the, it's the, we're hoping for a process and an outcome. And sometimes that process is discouraging because it doesn't look like there will be an outcome. And we have to wait. So does the enemy use that? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. We all pray for things that we don't immediately get. This is why people get teary-eyed when, when the Lord answers a prayer seemingly instantly. It's almost like, wow. We're like, like that time I told y'all about when I was in L.A. and the sun just dropped out of the sky. And I just wept right there because I knew that the Lord, I just felt like the Lord was like, I see you, my son. Like, I know this is all you wanted. It was a cloudy day. I, just, I drove two hours from San Francisco just to take a picture of this, 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 this scene with this lighthouse. And I was like, man. And then the sun just dropped out. There was no way I could have seen that happen. And the sky was full of beautiful color for the next 45 minutes. And I felt like the Lord, of course, he didn't do it just for me. But in that moment, I felt like the Lord did that for me. That was, it was personal to me. And I wept and worshiped for 45 minutes in that car because I felt that. This is why we feel that when the Lord does something. Because if we're honest, a lot of us don't feel like the Lord loves us. Or we think it's a tough love. And so, yeah, does the enemy use that? 100%. 100%. But this is why Jesus said in Luke 7 about John the Baptist, it extends to us, blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. We have to fight being offended at the Lord like John the Baptist was because our circumstances can be so challenging that we cannot no longer believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So, yeah, the enemy uses it, absolutely. We persevere. We keep believing. Faith is, this is what faith is. Biblical faith is, I believe it because God says it, even if I don't see it. And we stay right there, as difficult as it can be, and we'll be tempted to go, all, go this way and go that way. But we try to stay going this way as best as possible. And that's why we need, we, need, we need Jesus, we need his word, and we need one another. Thank you. Uh, this next question is, how does perpetual sin and forgiveness coincide with one not playing the hypocrite and striving to live holy. I ask that again. How does perpetual sin and forgiveness coincide with one not playing the hypocrite and striving to live holy? How's perpetual forgiveness? So, so I, 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 what I, uh, I think what they mean is um, how when you're caught in sin, basically how you're not being hypocritical. So if you're perpetually sinning and asking the Lord for forgiveness for something, like, how is that not uh, hypocritical? Even though you are, at the same time, you're, you, they're saying, I think you're striving they're to be striving holy. To be holy. Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciate the question. I think the question, what the question is getting at is what is the gospel for? That's the real issue. Like, like, like the gospel is not about, like the gospel forgives us for perpetual sin. This was the point of why Jesus came. It wasn't that, hey, he came because we could do it but just won't do it. He came because we can't do it. So what God sees is not just the perpetual sin. He sees the genuine faith that you have. And he sees the fact that you are doing it to honor him because of your faith in Jesus. And he forgives all of that. So God doesn't see the hypocrisy that we feel. He sees us trying to live according to the faith that we've received. So it's like this. It's like this. My children are, they try to do, there's things that they just can't do because they're young, especially when they were younger and trying to teach them to be kind of moral, like don't do that. And like there were times where we would reward our children for things that they did because they're trying. Actually, no, I said it even right now. Listen, distance learning for my family is, man, as tough as a street game. I don't know what it is about distance learning this year, but it's just not working. I mean, we got to do it, but my kid, it's difficult. It's a challenge. 
And it's like this, and my wife is super woman, going from kid to kid, making sure everybody understands when I'm home, I'll stay with him. It's like we, it's like we tag teaming. It's like we do this, you, 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 can you do him? All right, boom, tag, switch, I'll go over here. Go. So it just, it just happens, it's crazy. And my kids are struggling. And sometimes we gotta, son, you're not taking it seriously, we gotta correct them. But then sometimes we know they're trying really hard. Mm -hmm. And so my kids, like my son will do, he did really well yesterday. My, my, my wife said, babe, he did really good in his math. He was really trying and he did all, he got his answers right. So I said, son, I gave him a hug and a kiss. And I said, all right, you get some V-Bucks from Fortnite. Just be bribing my kids with Fortnite V-Bucks. Roblox, Robux, just be bribing my kids. Bank account is on low because of that. Apple is like, man, you employee of the month. Apple thinks I work for them because I'm buying so much of the stuff. Listen, but that's what we do. We, you know what? Because he tried. And then the other day, I was working with my youngest, and he wasn't getting it. And he was getting frustrated because I said, look, if you get these three whites, you get V-Bucks. He didn't get them right. And he was struggling. And he tried. He couldn't do it. And I was like, listen, son, I can't give it to you because so he was upset. He was crying. And I hugged him. And he said he was trying. So I know you're trying, son. So I rewarded him anyway, right? Because he's trying. Like the Lord sees what we're doing. He says, I see you, son. I see you, daughter. He sees that. He knows the hypocrisy is there for everybody. Listen, Jesus came because everybody's a hypocrite. The difference is I'm trying to be. I'm okay with being a hypocrite. The fact that you're not is proof that the Spirit's at work in you. So God's not looking at the hypocrisy. He's looking at you trying to obey him in light of all the evils in the world that are calling you not to obey him. He sees the times you consider and you fight and don't act, and he's pleased with that because he's given you his spirit. Every time we obey him, we're proving that Jesus is real. Every time. It's a testimony. Jesus prayed this. He said, look, I pray that I, they are one as you and the Father are one, so the world may know that you sent me. Like, the way that we love, Jesus said, I, I want you to love one another as I have loved you so that the world may know. Every time we're obeying God and we're fighting, he sees that. He's not like, oh, man, look at this dude. That's why Jesus came, because everybody's a hypocrite. Once Adam and Eve bit the fruit, everyone was born with a desire to define good and evil on their own. All of us have it. Babies on out. Babies aren't crying because they try and say hello. Babies be crying because they want something. Man, what you doing, man? I'm hungry. I want to be held. Like, what's going on around here? Yeah, but before they know how to talk, they know, you know what most kids' first word is what? No. Most children, that'd be one of their first words, no. Commitment, no. Like, man, you know, you, you can get mad at a two-year-old. You could get their two for a, for a minute. Everybody that's been around two-year-old knows. You, get, you forget. I remember I had a four-year-old hit me in my chest one time. For a second, it felt like he was 24. I was like, whoa. Caught me off guard. My anger welled up in my, then I realized this boy is four years old. I'm soft, because that joint hurt. Now, listen, God sees the efforts of his children, and he embraces that, and he rewards us for that obedience. He doesn't see the hypocrisy in us. He sees the efforts. Sure, he sees, when I say he doesn't see the hypocrisy, what I mean is he's not evaluating us based on the failures. He's evaluating us based on the, the pursuit of righteousness. But we're all hypocrites, and we just need to accept that. Um. Excuse me. We've had many questions about how to correct. Mm -hmm. um, how can one position themselves to receive correction? You're asking the wrong person. Um, I think the best way to position myself to receive correction is to ask a trustworthy person for it. You know, as a pastor and as a leader, 
I often have to train people to correct me because they tend to not do that because of my position, unless they're bitter at me or something, and everything is a correct. They already tell me everything. But usually they think like, oh, man, this is a dude who helps me, or this is a dude who. So I have to ask. You have to train people sometimes. So what I'll do is I'll just confess, like in my D group two weeks ago, my D group leader is Billy. That dude is a gold mine. There's no way I would lead that group with him. And I'm always, I always want to be under his leadership. We talked for two and a half, almost three hours. I was just sharing my burden, struggles, ways that I failed, all of it. And he was just there to encourage me. It's important to make sure that people, especially if you're in a position of leadership, it's important to make sure people get that from you. But I think the best way to position yourself for it is to ask for it from people that you know will not tempt you by giving it, right? Because there, you ask the person who may be bitter or someone who's self-righteous, you might get more than you bargain for, right? <laughs> ask people that you know are trustworthy. And what I mean, ask people that actually know you. There are times people will come up and be like, hey, Pastor Kurt, what are ways you think I can grow? And it's like, man, to be honest with you, I can't answer that because I don't really know you that well. I would have to ask you questions. That take, you'd have to ask people in your D group. Well, I think, I, th I think every D group should just have devote a couple of D groups to just like, hey, what are areas that you think I can grow? And each person is told that by people in their group. And you just pick one or two things that you're going to give attention to if you believe that it's accurate. I think people just don't want to do that. So we want to dance around the issue of like, okay, I'm too afraid to say something or I'm waiting for the right time. And then both of those just take time. It just doesn't happen. Especially if it's somebody who's sinning against you and then they don't know it and you're more offended at them and you ain't even had the courage to tell them. So all these things, all these things happen in the course of this. I think the best thing to do is to ask people two things. Share your sin struggles with others mm -hmm. so that they know that this is there so they can speak into your life. And then ask people. Some, if, I, I'm telling you, if you haven't been corrected in a while, it might not be because you're killing it. It might just be because people ain't killing their fear of man. And that might be the real issue. So I think you should be able to ask people that you trust, like, hey, I'll, I'll do this. Or just say, listen, I'm struggling in this area. I'm struggling with being judgmental towards people for this. And then let them speak to you. That's how you position yourself to receive correction. And then third, the third thing I would say is, I, I, you know, this is, be, this is one of them cliches, but I think it's 100% right. Jesus dying on the cross to forgive us for sins is the greatest correction of anything. Of anything. Like mm -hmm. the fact that we needed God to become a human being, to die on the cross, to forgive us for sin, tells us how sinful we are. And so that alone just says, you know what, whatever observations you have for me, like, I, like we sin against God way more than people know. Right. So whatever people bring to my attention is always going to be less than how much I actually sin. It's just it's not realistic. Mm -hmm. Somebody brings up, you said this in a comment, that's just one comment. That's that. They don't know none of the thoughts that you've had or that you've agreed to that you didn't act on externally. They don't know none of that stuff. They only going off of the one thing that they see or whatever that is. There's there's way that reality shouldn't overwhelm us. But just say, hey, listen, I'm the I'm worse than what people know. So I should be able to receive what people see. That's those are some things I would say. Mm -hmm. This next one is a, a two parter and it begins with with an observation that uh, one detail that precedes Luke 4 is the affirmation of Jesus being from the Father. Mm -hmm. um, is it accurate to say that part of our motivation to resist temptation is connected with our confidence of God's affirming love for us as sons and daughters? 100%. And if so, can you speak to how uh, we 
renew our minds on God's love in conjunction with remembering the importance of the word? Well, I think this is an identity question, right? So this, this goes back to stuff that we were saying a couple years ago when we were in Romans 8. Um, it, it, it just, this idea of my, like my identity in Christ is, is the main reason why we do what we do. Like morality in and of itself can be found in almost every religion. So there's not a religion. I mean, there's okay, maybe the religion of Satan or something. But even they, even they have a morality, right? Even sata- even the satanic church has a morality. It's just not one that we subscribe to. So morality, in and of itself, will always be in religion. What makes morality and Christianity different is the motivation, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's the motivation and the fact that it was the God Himself that died on our behalf. So we're motivated by that. I think we got to meditate ourselves on promises, like like. Like 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, that's just, a good, that's just a good promise to just remind ourselves. Like, we need promises. So 2 Peter 1, 9, I, I just love that promise. For, for if we are, I'm paraphrasing this, but for if we are not uh, growing in these areas, then we are unfruitful and we have forgotten that we have been cleansed from our former sins, right? There, Peter, the, the Bible does not speak of professing believers as in the negative terms. When it talks about sinners, it talks about them as who you formerly were or who people currently are that don't believe in Jesus. Once you believe in Jesus, your identity changes in the Bible. The challenge is it doesn't always change to us because we still do some of the old things. But we remember those things. But the identities are beloved, sheep, co-heir, uh, son, daughter, uh, brother, sister, family of God, royal priest. Pre- like all these things are the language. This is why Paul doesn't say when you're sinning, Man, you need to stop. He says, look, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received in Ephesians. Or in Colossians, it might talk about put to death that which is earthly in you. He speaks from who you are now. He's not speaking from how you feel now or who you were, but who you are now based on that profession. That's, That's different. That's really different. So, again, I think we have to remind ourselves of the claim of Christ. The real issue that I think, if I'm getting, if I'm understanding your question, the real issue is I need to, how do I allow myself to believe and how do I remind myself to believe what God actually says about me? Because it's counterintuitive to what I see in myself and how I feel at times. And that's when I have to trust the promise of God and what he said. Listen, everyone who's a genuine Christian trusts that when they die, they're going to go to heaven with all of the sins that they commit regardless. So if we're trusting God with the scariest thing in the world, like our eternal destination, then we should be able to trust him when he says who we are, even if we go against that by our own actions at times. So passages like 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, 1 Peter, I mean, I could name a bunch, as you know, but I think that's a good, Romans 8, there's a ton of passages in Romans 8 and Ephesians 2, just a ton of verses that just remind, Ephesians 1, just like before the foundation of the world, God. So these are promises that are just not theologically written, but they're supposed to be, you know, fundamentally believed. These are the things that the enemy uses to make us not believe. I mean, that's what Satan, Satan told Peter. Well, he wants to sift them as wheat. He wants to shake his confidence because of, because of he wants to shake his confidence in the Lord because he rejected him three times. And, and that's what happens to us. We get, our confidence gets shaken, but we have to keep fighting to believe the, what God says about us. Right. Um, mo- uh, continuing in the theme of of the word, uh, which was, you know, so um, elaborately um, 
you know, emphasized during the message. Um, this person asks, do you have any tips for personal uh, scripture study? Um, they say that they've moved from reading books that contextualize the scriptures into practical sections of application so that when they or someone else is struggling, that they can uh, be quickly be met with scripture. So they know that there's, you know, memorization, there's walking through the Bible chronologically, um, or focusing on the passage for the week. Um, is there anything that has been especially successful or helpful for you? Meditation. So uh, there's a book I read years ago, and I think Lou Chacuni is actually going to be doing this as a Bible study. Donald Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines. There's a chapter on meditation that was the best I've ever heard. And I never forgot this statement. He said this, read less if it is to meditate more. And when I read that, when I used to read the Bible, I used to try to read like a whole letter. Like when we read the whole letter of Philippians, the whole letter of James. Let me just read a lot. I want to read. And there were times where, and I think it's good to do that. There's many ways to read. But when I'm talking about actually growing, mm -hmm. I need to learn how to meditate and slow down mm -hmm. and think, okay, so I might only read two verses today, but I'm going to sit there and think about those verses. So I'm going to be like, okay, why did God, what do you mean by this, Lord? Why did you say this? I'm going to read it over. I may, I may look at certain words and emphasize this word, like, okay, for the one who loves God, okay, loves God, what does loves God mean? Like, what are you getting at? For the one who, the, I'm, 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 I'd rather read two verses and think o about what they mean. Like, I'll read two verses in two minutes and spend 45 minutes thinking about them. Because I don't think God, I don't think for God, it's like, it's not a, like, okay, you read the whole Bible. I think it's mean you lived what you did read. And so, it's, to me, it's, it's more about how do I think about the Bible continuously? So I always ask the Bible questions. I always ask, like, Lord, why would you? I'll think, like, man, Lord, why did you say this? Why did you say this particular phrase here? And I'll look at what was said before or the verse, and I'll think, man, so what does that mean for us in light of? So how are we, you know, I'm asking the because I want to meditate on the verses. I'm not worried about if I read a whole chapter or two. I know people, I mean, let's just be honest. Let's just be honest, right? This is church. We can be honest. Many of us have read the Bible, had an hour quiet time in the morning, and by noon that day forgot most of what we read. Like just forgot it. Like maybe not that you didn't forget that you did read, but you forgot. Like unless it was some passage that was really like, but if it was just like going through the Bible in a year, you might forget like which like some. If you're one of them people that are reading the Bible in a year and you do like four chapters a day, you might even forget like what the theme of them were and all of that by lunchtime because you just get caught up. But I find that when I meditate, when I'm actually thinking about what it's saying and focusing on certain words, not the, of course, the means the all the time, right? But when I'm looking at certain words, you know, I might see like, uh, you know, so I said something about, I said, let's, let's give an example. I said 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, right? So it has this, it has this dichotomy, verse 13, for if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Let's say I'm meditating on that. I'll think, like, if we remain faithless, okay, what does it mean to be faithless? So, Lord, are you talking about, okay, because in verse 12, you said if we disown him, he will disown us. So it's not talking about, so faithlessness can't be walking away from the faith. Cause that's, what do you mean by faithless? So, okay, so this is, if we remain faithless, he remains faithful. Faithless, okay, is this looking like, okay, so God is talking about here, if I'm faithless, if I fail in my faith, if I give in to sin, God remains faithful. Remains faithful for what? Well, because he cannot disown himself. Okay. 
So if I'm faithless and he remains faithful, so for me to sin, God doesn't disown me because I sin. That's crazy. Now, if I, if I disown him in verse 12, then he will disown me. But if I'm faithless, he remains faithful. That's what I'm talking about. I'll just sit there and do that for an hour and just walk away, blown away by the word of God. So I think we need to meditate more and read less if, that's, if, it, if you're not getting what you want, if you're not growing. I think we just spend a lot of time uh, reading and not enough time thinking about how am I going to apply this. Okay, so um, there's uh, one last question. And that question is, um, can we do a study of Deuteronomy after we finish Romans? LOL. <laughs> Actually, after, after Deuteronomy, we're going to go back to 4 Seeing. After <laughs> Romans, we're going to go back to 4 Seeing. And, uh, uh, we'll see. We'll see. I would lo- we will, I'll say this. We will, Lord willing, Lord willing, we will definitely go through Deuteronomy within the next two years, Lord willing. I'll say that. I, I, I think Deuteronomy is, a, is an incredible, incredible book. And, uh, and I think I even know who asked that question, to be honest. But, huh? Who do I think asked it? Now I don't want to put them out there because that's for the whole church. I'll tell you afterwards, though. Okay, I'll tell you, I'll tell you afterwards before you tell me, but I don't want to say it in front of everybody. Not because I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to put this person out there. But um, so, yeah, I think I would love to go through Deuteronomy. I can't guarantee that it'll be after Romans. But I, I intend to return to Romans relatively soon. Just trying to let the smoke clear a little bit. But uh, I mean, we... I want to get back to Romans and uh, re- really soon. So we'll be in Romans really soon. Uh, we're almost done with this series, and then we're going to get back to Romans. I just want the smoke to clear, because I don't want to start Romans and then find out people are choking each other out, and then we got to go back to reminding what we said about love. So we'll, we'll get back to that soon, and then we'll see. But I'm not, I'm not, we'll definitely go through Deuteronomy. I've been wanting to hit a good Old Testament book for some time. So that might be, it might be what we do after Romans, but I don't want to commit to it, and then other things come up, and it's like, oh, man, you said we were going to do that? People still get on me about foreseeing. So it's like, dang, that must have been a crazy series for y'all, because people still like, man, we ain't finished that joint. So anyway, but I appreciate it. Good questions. Thank you all. Be praying for me. If the Spirit reminds you, I'm leaving today from, from here to go on a retreat for a couple of days with a few pastors, and so I'll be gone until Wednesday. Be back sometime Wednesday, so I'd appreciate your prayers. It's, it's going to be... Uh, beneficial on a number of different levels. And so we'll see what, what, what's going to happen. But would appreciate your prayers for myself and my family. And uh, um, thank you so much for that. Don't forget this week, you got D Group and uh, looking forward to hearing how your groups are going. And continue to pray for all of us. Our nation is in peril in many ways. And so Tuesday will be the world will be watching on Tuesday, even if the conclusion won't be evident, the, pro, the, the, the day will be. So make sure you're praying for that. And look forward to being with you guys. Love you guys. Thank you so much for your prayers and your attentiveness and your questions. Lord willing, see you next week.